Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The 805 Conversations podcast is produced every other week. Please subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming shows. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and continued encouragement. I also want to thank our podcasting partner, Pullstring Press, and Patrick, who's not joining me today. We miss him. I know. Send him, send him letters. He'll appreciate that. I'd like you to meet our guest uh, this morning, Edgar Terry. Edgar is the uh, president and CFO of Terry Farms down in Ventura. Edgar, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks Glad for making the drive up. Oh, it's always wonderful. And I bet it was up. beautiful, right? Oh, gosh. The ocean was just gorgeous today. No fog. Yeah, there you go. And there was a, uh, there was a last, was it last week, there was a fire out on the islands. I heard that. Uh, and then yesterday there was an earthquake somewhere out there. And someone took a picture. I don't know how they got the picture of the island as the earthquake was happening and you could see the dust clouds coming up. Oh, wow. It was, I was like, okay, how did you get that? Was it a park service person or? I don't, I, it was just, I, I, going through my feed, you know, in the morning, like what happened yesterday? And my daughter called me, uh, within 30 seconds after the earthquake, she lives in Camarillo just to say, are you guys okay? And was like, I didn't feel it. And, and she says, oh, your Facebook feed's going to blow up. And so I went <laughs> and looked, and, and indeed, yes. So, wow. Uh, but when it's a beautiful day, that drive from Ventura up here is spectacular. I think it's one of the best drives in California. It really is. Yeah, we have, um, we have listeners in 42 countries. Oh, wow. So people will, who've not been here, they live uh, somewhere in South America or the Middle East. We've got I mean, literally... People listen from all over the world. This is one of the spots where people move here for the weather. They stay for the community because the people are nice. My uh, son got married a week and a half ago. And Congratulations. He got Thank you. And he got married up in San Ines, so all the relatives came out. And they and that week just happened to be so beautiful. And they had never making that, made that drive up the 101 before, up to Solvang. And they were just like, wow, this is really cool. Yeah. You get to see this every day. I go, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you do. Now, where where did all the family come from? Uh, some came as far as Louisiana, Ohio, Utah, uh, just all over the country. And how long have you been in the area? Um, my family uh, has been in the Vent- in Ventura County area since about uh, 1890, late 1890s. One, one side of the family, early 1890s. Other side of the family, late 1890s. So that's a long time. Yeah. And yeah. always been farmers? We've always been farmers. I'm the fourth generation at it. My son, William, is now the fifth. Um and his sister, Alyssa, uh, is the uh, fifth, and uh, you know, hope to keep it going. The um, That Oxnard Plain, I think that's what it's called, that yes. lower part of Ventura mm-hmm. County, so that it's a huge... How big an area is that? It's about 50,000 acres of agriculture on the Oxnard Plains. Got it. And why is it that it... That it's so perfect. Like you grow strawberries and other vegetables, right. and and most of the strawberries in the world, I think, come out of <laughs> here and up in Santa Maria in this area. Why is it so ideal for Mediterranean climate? The climate here is just the days and nights are very similar. You don't have extreme hot. You don't have extreme cold. So it's a very mild climate, and the soil, topsoil, is very deep here. So you've got. Just perfect growing conditions for 365 days a year, and it's just very unusual in the uh, in the world. 
the strawberries that you there's some strawberries i'm sorry listener if the strawberries you get are not amazing in the store because they get picked and they've got to travel and they've got and they've been bred to travel yet there are all of these strawberries we get in the farmer market farmers markets here or some of the farms you have to actually go to the farm to get the strawberries and we have a fruit stand we only do direct sales and our strawberries are uh, uh, a variety. Uh, they're by the University of California, but they're a fantastic tasting variety, and we pick them 100% red. And so when you come to the fruit stand, they're probably picked within an hour or two and sold. No kidding. Yep. And uh, my wife uh, runs our, our fruit stand in Ventura, and it, it uh, 16 years, I think it's our 16th year doing it. And uh, it's just fantastic. People just really enjoy uh, coming to it. Yeah, there is something um, that's so spectacular about uh, a piece of fruit or vegetable that's picked at its prime that's just perfect. It's like, okay, this is what it's supposed to be. I, you're right. And, uh, you know, because uh, fruits and vegetables are shipped all over the world, it's a global market. It's really a lot of fun to be able to go to a place where you can meet the farmer right. or meet the farmer's family and maybe even meet the folks in the field that are, are doing uh, the harvesting for you and and uh, getting something so fresh that it's, you know, unbelievable. And that's that's what we've tried to make a niche at. Yeah, that's one of the one of the blessings living here. I'm a chef. Uh, one of my things in life is being a chef and being able to go to the farmer's market seven days a week here in Santa Barbara mm-hmm. and be able to get the best of the best. And there's so much bounty. And it's not like only for six weeks during a, the spring. It's like all year long. You also, and I want to thank, um, I want to thank Gerhardt from uh, California Lutheran University, our longtime sponsor and has become a, a dear friend. He is the one who's introduced us. Mm-hmm. And you're an adjunct professor at Calu in the School of Management. Tell me about that. What do you teach? I teach corporate finance. Uh, <laughs> okay, connect those dots for me. Well, uh, you know, uh, a, kind of a, a diverse background. So I'm a farmer full-time. We farm about 2,000 acres of crops in Ventura County. And for the last 32 years, I have been teaching in the evenings at Cal Lutheran. 32 years? Uh, Gerhardt's Two, uh, two deans before Gerhardt, Jim Esme, who was my economics professor, uh, after I got married in the mid-1980s, came to me and say, said, Ed, you ought to think about teaching. And I go, uh, really? He goes, yeah, I think you'd like it, and I think you'd be good at it. So I started teaching finance, and I'm on the board of directors of a, uh, a couple different organizations and with that require a finance background, and I've just had a knack for corporate finance. And... Uh, so I've been teaching for 32 years in their MBA program and their adult undergraduate program, their professionals program, it's called. Right, right, right. And I, and I really enjoy it. I just really enjoy doing it in the evening. I'm doing two nights a week right now. Uh, and this summer I will do one class, and in the fall I'll do one class, and in the winter I'll go back to two classes. So so we have business, and I think that's the reason Gerhardt thought this would be good, is we have business people listening to the show, entrepreneurs listening mm-hmm. to the show. I'm thinking... Um, that person, what's the biggest surprise that your students, that aha moment they get about the importance of finance in their fledgling organization? That's a great question. And and what I try to do is relate finance back to 
how I deploy it in my company. And I think the biggest thing that my students see is the applicability of a subject that can be a little bit complex, but the applicability of understanding that there's no substitute for good finance within an organization and the best laid plans and marketing plans and all the plans you come up with don't happen unless the capital is behind it and how to understand getting capital and what that capital costs. Does, okay, so separate question then. At what point does an organization need dedicated financial support internally? Yeah. So, you know, there's a growth phase of all companies. You have the entrepreneur gets the company, has the idea, gets it up and running. And at some point when that product starts to mature a little bit and the growth starts to level out, but you want to keep it running, um, you have to have an understanding of how do you uh, how do you how do you survive in a competitive environment? You know, margins start to decrease over time. How do you run efficiently so you can still make a profit, make a living? and and still grow the company. So when prof or when when the uh, product starts to become competitive, and the pricing starts to drop, how do you become efficient to be able to understand that, forecast it, and still be able to survive? And in my industry, since agriculture is a very very competitive industry, nobody goes to the grocery store and says, "I demand to pay a higher price for strawberries <laughs> or romaine." So how do you how do you yeah. how do you keep that? Uh, uh, business going with a margin that may be, you know, single digits, low single digits. Low single digits. Low single digits. So so if you're making four points on the, you make four cents on the dollar mm-hmm. or nine cents on the dollar, every decision that you make upstream of that can, can make or break your whole it business. Make or break the entire year. Uh, I'm very much into uh, financial forecasting and and trying to uh, uh, get better at predicting what my bottom lines look like going forward, even though they're forecasts, they're, uh, they're guideposts to work within. And what do I have to do behind the scenes to be able to survive in that, to keep my overhead within a certain uh, parameter? And it's very difficult. It's very difficult uh, with compliance and, and employment and everything else. So it's, it's very important to have an understanding of the, how, the money, how the money goes around in circles. How does let's let's go up a little bit from that. You're also the chairman of the board for the Center of Economic Research and Forecasting at Cal Lutheran. Mm-hmm. So that's the Economic Forecast Project, who's run by Matthew Finup, and Matthew's been on the show. And Matthew's a good friend. Yeah, he's just he's brilliant about this, and he had a. It was interesting talking to him about forecasting. So he's not reporting on stuff in the rearview mirror, he's talking about things going mm-hmm. forward. How has that helped your business, that deeper understanding? I, I've always uh, had a fascination with economics, even in high school. Uh, a friend and I took directive study economics, there were only two of us in the class, back huh. when public schools could do that. Yep. And I, I became fascinated with economics and uh, didn't major in it. but. I, I was fascinated with it because it 
it applies to so many things you do in life. Yeah. And uh, when I met Matthew, we kind of hit it off because we have a lot of the, the same ideas about economics. His are much more, you know, in-depth than mine because that's what he does. Sure. But we also have the same philosophical bent when it comes to economics. and, and Which uh, is? We're, we're both probably very libertarian in economics. We both believe in free markets and capitalism and uh, that... Uh, uh, when people have the ability to make choices for themselves, uh, for their own good, that's a good thing. What's the the farming, uh, the agricultural community like as a business, the way you work together in Ventura County? Because it's such a big, I don't know what part it is of the GDP of about 4%. Ventura. That's all. Yeah, it's about 4% of the Ventura County. It's 2% of the state and a hair over 1% of the nation. So it's it's... It's very small when you look at it in terms of GDP, but it also has a big footprint because just going to say yeah, yeah. A lot of the folks that live in Ventura like the amenities that agriculture brings: the green space, the crops, the the uh, uh, the lack of uh, uh, dense housing where you have space in between housing. Now, with that comes problems when agriculture. Uh, it's called the ag-urban interface, and when agriculture is next door to a housing track. Uh, the folks love to see the greenway, but they don't necessarily always like the things that go, by, you know, to make that greenery, the dust, the, uh, maybe the uh, pest control processes, the right. fertilizer processes. So right. it's really more of a, uh, it's a big balancing act. The farmers need to be proactive and work with their, their neighbors. And uh, we found in the areas that were uh, ag-urban, uh, you know, being out there and being up front uh, and and being honest with people is the best policy. I I know from uh, having uh, some experience with people lived in Lompoc that, that because it's windy up there, mm -hmm. you know, at two o'clock the winds are going to blow, and if they're spraying, right, that's to your point, the pest right. control and the the fertilizing. That's what's planes flying what feels like they're 10 feet off the ground, right, right doing that. Right. How have you, because I don't think you, do you do that in Ventura County? We don't, we don't use uh, fixed-wing aircraft. They do use helicopters, but um, we try to minimize it in the uh, uh, impacted areas. You know, the, the more rural areas, not a problem. But the more impacted areas, we, uh, we want to make sure that we're going to do it when, we're not going to do it on a weekend, generally. We're going to do it after people leave for work. We're going to have uh, ask the if if we think it's going to be a problem, we'll have to ask the uh, ag commissioner deputies to come out and be on site and uh, watch the process to make sure everything you know is working right. So we we try really hard to be good neighbors, and and my son William fields a lot of phone calls from folks, and and uh, to dis if they have a question, he's open to discussing it with them and and making sure they understand what's going on. Yeah, there's, um, I'm curious, uh, you know, so many different questions on this. So let's talk about the business of ag for a second as it relates to being organic and being mm -hmm. the compliance around being organic and all the extra cost that that adds and why when, you know, if I go to the grocery and I want to buy an organic vegetable produce it costs so much more mm -hmm. than something that's that's not explain that the economics of that so or, or organics have been around forever right and uh, right. they're becoming more and more popular but with organic production and the economist magazine a number of years noted this too when you decide to 
go organic, you're going to use a whole different regime of chemicals and fertilizers. Uh, you're going to compete with more of the soil-borne diseases. Uh, you're going to compete more with weeds. You're going to compete more with insects. So therefore, in some cases, the productivity per acre goes down. And it can go down anywhere from just a, a single percent to as much as 50 percent. And so when you're losing your productivity like that, your cost per unit goes up. And as your cost per unit goes up, you're going to require a higher price from the consumer to be able to meet that meet that uh, uh, meet your demand. Is the demand for organics rising? Um, so I'll, I'll be upfront. We have not dedicated any of our production to right. organic, but I have a right. lot of friends that do it, and there is more organic uh, uh, demand out there. However because of the increased uh, amount of organics that are on the market, the price differential that the farmer receives between organic and conventional is, is being reduced. There's just because of the amount of supply that's coming on site. So at the retail level, I don't know, but at the, at the farm gate level, the, the price in certain points of the year are converging. So it's really interesting. Tell me, uh, you're, so you're multi-generation mm -hmm. farmer. Would someone, is it possible for someone to get into farming now? And if they did, would they? That's a great question. And I just had, uh, the other day, a friend of mine and I were having this discussion. And the easy, the easy answer is uh, most folks that get into the industry are born into it. You have to have the land. You know, you have to get a start. Can you start it on your own? Sure. Uh, access to capital is a key ingredient. And you figure nowadays that uh, if you take a five-year time frame, you make money one, one and a half years, break even a year and a half and lose money the rest of the time. So you have to be able to weather those downturns. And that's the tough part for when folks get into it. Plus, it's a 24-7 uh, occupation. It's, it's pretty darn hard to take the weekend off and go hang out. You, if you're going to grow vegetables, uh, you've got to hover over them. You got to pay attention to them because every day is a new day. If you're growing other types of crops, you know permanent plantings, uh, you're still going to hover over them. But it's like trees, like trees, nuts avocados, yeah. nuts, uh, right. citrus. You're still hovering over them, but in a different way. It's uh, it's a it's a, it's a longer term uh, growing cycle. So uh, with vegetables, you know, for instance, cilantro. We grow a lot of cilantro. Summertime, that's going to be harvested after planting in in 40 days. And then we're going to flip that soil right back around and grow something else. So you're constantly on the move. It's a sprint. Every it's a sprint every day. I, um, I my in-laws are um, their roots are in uh, farming back in Illinois, mm -hmm. and when they go back to visit, they will go back and see you know huge farm corn farms and things like that, and they're surprised at how technology has impacted. They know exactly. Um, every he was just telling me how they know the farmer knows everything about the soil and the water and mm -hmm. the, so just all of that. How is how has technology impacted this industry? From well, here? Com computers are an integral part of everything we do now, uh, from irrigation. Uh, the uh, we use tensiometers in the field, What's which that? have been around for years. They're a, a, a device you put into the soil and it measures the uh, the soil capacity of water, and so you don't overwater or underwater, and uh, 
uh, in fact, with tensiometers with permanent plantings, you can hook them up to your water well, and the water well will irrigate automatically for you. No kidding. Yeah, it's really kind of cool. Uh, with the vegetables, because we spin the crop so quickly, we actually go out and take a physical reading of them, the irrigator does, to see what the uh, where we're at with soil moisture. Fertilizers, we're metering on fertilizers now instead of just saying, you know, uh, put on 100 gallons out in the field. We're actually metering it on uh, per uh, irrigation set uh, to be more precise. The stuff's expensive. The uh, uh, pest control guys, we use a process called integrated pest management. And we try to, uh, you know, balance uh, the natural predators with uh, insecticides. So if we need to spray an insecticide for something, we don't wipe out all the natural predators that are gonna be beneficial to keep another pest down. Right, right. So it's a very integrated process every day. It's just, um, you don't put on a blindfold and uh, just, you know, ready, fire, aim. We don't do that. Right, you can't hope that they'll grow. You can't hope that they'll grow. <laughs> Hope's not a there. strategy, right? Yeah, no, hope is not a strategy. <laughs> Exactly. Um, I don't understand this part of it, but how does satellite imaging help the farmer? Especially on uh, in the Midwest and the Central Valley of California where, where growers have huge parcels. Yeah. They can actually take uh, imagery of their blocks and see if they're having an infestation of insects that are watering too much, too little, too much fertilizer, too little fertilizer. Uh, the... Uh, uh, the ripening process of their fruits. And, and uh, so satellites are becoming more and more integral to especially larger growers. And through infrared technology, they can see actually what's going on out in their, you know, their block of a thousand acres. It's That's really amazing. Kind of, right. And drone technology too. I was too. just going to, that was my next thing was drone because there's a lot of drones in Ventura, right? There's there's mm -hmm. a center for drone research and all of that. Do you use drones? I have a drone, and I actually have, you do. Uh, I fly it over my crops once in a while, and you get out in the middle of a celery field where you normally don't walk, and you'll see something going on, and I'll look at it on my iPhone and go, "Oh my gosh, what's going on out there?" And so you know, you go out and take a look. But a, a, really, it's amazing what a drone will pick up. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised. It's, it's shockingly good. Yeah. Right. It's scary. <laughs> Well, they and they also use it for. I work with Metropolitan Water District mm -hmm. of Southern California, and they use it for pipeline inspection. Right? Yeah, inspection. Right, they do that. Um, let's go back to water for a second. We had um, Bill Camarillo in from uh, his his firm, which takes all the green waste and turns that into forty something products. And he was talking about how they work. Their scientists work on figuring out how to keep most of the water up at the root level. Mm -hmm. Do you, tell me about that. That was interesting. Yeah, so um, in Ventura for the last 15 years, we've had the uh, uh, Ventura County Agriculture Ir Irrigated Land Group. And what it was formed, the reason it was formed was to come in compliance with water quality. Mm. And so in the old days when I it was, a, you know, in high school, we would furrow irrigate and the water would run down the tail ditch and out into a canal and into the ocean. Well, that carried fertilizers and all kinds of things with it. So the, uh, uh, there's a, there was an act, the Porter Cologne Act, that said you got to clean up your, your waterways. And so that's what VCALG is tasked with doing, and they monitor it. And so consequently, uh, it's become, and, and it's a matter of efficiency, we're 95, 90, 95% drip irrigation on the farm, so we have no runoff anymore. We deliver the fertilizer to the root zone, and we only put on enough water to stay within the root zone. We're not trying to irrigate so much where the water goes down three, four feet because we don't need that. 
And so it has a lot of benefits. You put the fertilizer, the nutrient where you need it. You save water because we're still in the drought. Yep. And yep. we do a better job growing our crops. So it's, it's actually a win-win. And I had an agronomist from Israel when I was, oh gosh, this must have been 30 years ago. I was growing peppers for a company and he came over and and he said, uh, I was talking about drip irrigation. He goes, Ed, the way to think about drip irrigation is this way. It's not a method of irrigation. It's a method of growing. Get it um, out of your head that it's irrigation and think about it. It's part of the growing technique. Once we did that, it, be, it was an aha moment. Oh, mm. wow. We can really change the dynamic of how we grow a crop. And mo most everybody in the county is on some for form of drip irrigation, whether it's mini sprinklers in an orchard that are micro sprinklers micro sprinklers and strawberries or the drip irrigation we use in our celery and, and bell peppers. The, um, I'm, I'm thinking of all of the interconnected disciplines that you have to be a master of for your business to work. It's not just making a widget and mm -hmm. getting that out there. It's, it's, there's all of these various things. And again, all of those things have to conspire together perfectly so you can pull nine cents or whatever, whatever out is, of the yeah. dollar, right? That's, that's challenging. Yeah, and when I was growing up, my dad, who was just a wonderful mentor, uh, said something to me when I was in high school, and I was complaining about, you know, when you're trying to pull nine cents, five cents out of a dollar, and he goes, look, you don't go into agriculture with the idea you're going to become a, a billionaire. You're going to go in there with the idea that you're doing a job, you're creating a product, you're going to do the best job you can in creating that product. People consume that product. You want to be proud of what you're doing. And the really cool thing about being a farmer is you're doing something different every day of the week. Hmm. You're not going in and doing the same thing day after day after day. And he goes, very few people in their professions can claim that they do something different every day. Every hour of the day is a new challenge. And he was right. And, and ag is... I wish more kids would think about getting into ag because it's a wonderful industry. Well, so w where are the opportunities for them though, if they, because land is so expensive, I'm mm -hmm. thinking you're, there's probably a tug between, should I sell this land to a developer? I mean, I've been driving between Santa Barbara and LA my whole life. I came from the San Fernando Valley and I would drive through Camarillo, that area there and I was like, you know, this is all going to be housing and buildings and all this farmland is going to go away. And it's slowly happening. It's taken 40 years. Right. Right. It's slowly happening. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking if someone doesn't have the land, they're not born into it and they're wanting to go in. I think a lot of them are going into wineries. Mm -hmm. Right. They're going in and, and right. doing that. Where are the job opportunities? So, so the agricultural industry is in a consolidation mode right now. Growers are getting bigger because the retailers are consolidating. So as the retailers consolidate into bigger and bigger entities, the growers, for the most part, especially in fruits and vegetables, have to consolidate into bigger and bigger uh, entities, not so much in the Midwest because those are commodity types. Is that to control uh, costs? That's why control they're doing Control costs it. and also many t times retailers would like to deal with a better supply chain, right? a more 365-day right. supply chain. So they right. need to look at growers that have a, a, a big geographic presence, not only in Ventura County, but Yuma, Arizona, Chile, Argentina, Watsonville. So they're, they're looking for uh, uh, growers that have uh, a big footprint. Well, those growers 
are struggling to find managers. You know, that, oh. you know. Think about just oh. any any big organization that is trying to find people to come in and replace people that retire. Well, ag is becoming no different. They're looking for management. They're looking for smart uh, young folks to come in, and uh, you don't necessarily have to have an ag background. You know, you can have a scientific background, a right a, admin, admin, a liberal arts. It doesn't matter. It's just as long as you have the passion to learn it. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity out there along the West Coast and along uh, the South and along the Southeast in Florida. There's just a lot of opportunity with these some of these organizations that are out there. So are, are you an independent farm or you're part of um, big ag, big strawberry? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. So uh, we're very small strawberry. Like I said, our strawberries are just direct sales. Um, we are an independent farm that grows for larger organizations. What does that mean? So we, uh, we grow for a lar- large shippers. They come to us for a need. Uh, they'll say, Ed, we need you to grow 100 acres of celery. And we'll contract that with them to grow 100 acres of celery at a set price. It harvests. They harvest, ship it. They take all the uh, upside. They harvest. They harvest. Because some things we'll harvest ourselves. Others, they want to control the QC part of it. Oh. And that way they control the QC. They control the food safety part after har- from harvest on. Um, so it, it's kind of a unique business model. We started it in the early 1990s as the uh, industry started to consolidate rapidly. Uh, some of these larger organizations were looking for, a, uh, looking for a certain commodities that we grew. And so we started to contract with larger shippers and, and it's, it's, it's worked out for us. Well, that, uh, I kind of like that model. That's interesting because it's like I have the land and I just have to, and I've, I've figured out how to water, how to fertilize, how to efficiently plant, how to manage and mitigate all of the, the danger. So my, my yield is going to be, what's a yield on an uh, acre of celery? It's like, well, say 1,560 pound boxes an acre. And so, and how much of that do you lose because you just can't, it's either pest or, or whatever. Well, we hope we don't lose any nowadays. So now it's not, okay, that was I was going to. So it's a 1%. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Wow, so you've got it dialed. Yeah, well, a lot of us have it dialed because <laughs> as con- there's a lot of us that contract grow now and we have to be the best we can be every day of the week because folks are relying on us. And, uh, you know, if you have a weather event, you know, like two weeks ago, we had all that rain. Right. You're going to have slowdowns. You're going to have maybe crops that aren't harvested on time. But uh, we try to we try to be the best we can be. And it goes back to that old adage, you know, really uh, work with your core competencies. And that's what we've tried to do. Our core competencies are in the growing. Uh, You know, we do a really good job in marketing strawberries on a direct sales basis. I don't know if we could sell celery on a mass scale basis. It's just, it's a different thing. So the folks we grow for, they're experts in that and they right. do a great job at it. Right. We just want to be a great grower for them. I, I, I love that. I hadn't, hadn't even considered that because now you're, you're taking all of the, the cost and complexity out of that, the harvesting part of it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that, that's just, that just looks like that's fraught with peril. Actually. It is, and, and, and it's all about the supply chain, you know, from, as you know, and you've heard, labor is becoming problematic, so sure. labor, the harvesting is becoming more expensive, uh, the shippers rely on us to have, we have our internal uh, staff that we keep, and so we have, we have the folks on hand that can, you know, get the crop up to the point of harvest, 
the folks we contract with bring in their contract crews to harvest the crop, and then the they sell it, and it goes out into the distribution chain wherever it's going to go. How far does your celery travel? Oh, uh, I you know our shippers tell us it goes into Canada. Some of it may even go overseas. We were in Dubai six years ago, and we were in this. We we were in the their world's largest mall is there, and there's one portion of it that has a huge food market. Pretty cool. I don't know why you would go to a mall to buy your food, but people do. Yep. They do. Um, and I find this lettuce, and there's a bag of Santa Barbara lettuce. Yep. I was like, what? I, I went, my wife and I had to go to a conference uh, in Bali for the for uh, uh, Montreal you, Protocol. You, you had to go to Bali. Well, it was actually all work. We didn't spend <laughs> much time playing. So anyway, I always wanted to go to Singapore. So we stopped oh, in yeah, Singapore for a couple of days, and I've had a number of friends that have lived there and worked there, and they said, you got to go and check it out. So we went down there, walked into a grocery store, and there were strawberries from Oxnard. Right. And I'm going, and I knew the company, so I, I had texted the salesman and took a photo and, and said, this is really cool. I am 8,000 miles from home, and right. there your strawberries are. Right. I, right. And that is, that. I mean, that's why global trade and things like that are so important to be able to get your commodities out there to a wider audience. How does, um, so when I think of the, the market forces, I think of the forces, not market forces, the forces that affect your business. Weather is the big, big one. The labor market, that's another one, but you mitigate that by having someone else do that. Right. How does global economics affect what you're doing? It's becoming a huge uh, issue. Obviously in California, California runs as if it were its own country. Yes, fourth largest economy. Right. We have our own labor laws, minimum wages. Uh, we have our own rules and regulations when it comes to pesticides and fertilizers. And uh, so it probably, I'll give you a great a great example. Uh, there's certain commodities out there that where there's more of a shift to move into Mexico just because of the labor savings down there. Maybe, you know, maybe the cost of growing, you know, the inputs are the same, but the labor is cheaper. So how do you how do you make up for that if you're a California grower? You only make up for it for be by being more productive. And you know, as I like to say, you can't hit a home run on every crop. You got to be able to make money on a single once in a while, and that's becoming more and more problematic. It's really to make a decent return, you've got to hit a home run. The break even nowadays seems to be a double, and maybe being on the plus side's a triple. But if you just hit a single you're losing money. And consequently, that's where it's becoming difficult. It's trying to create, uh, and it's no different than any other industry. How do you become, how do you stay competitive with other areas of the world that can do a, just as good a job as you can for less cost per unit? And, you know, uh, people exercise their vote of food by paying a dollar, right? They're going to go into a grocery store and they're right. going to pull out a dollar. Right. And they're going to exercise their vote of what they want to pay for by that dollar. So if the price of a commodity gets to a price point where they're going to turn away and walk away, the person that, that supplies that product or the person that uh, sells that product is going to look for a place that they can meet that price point, a place where they can produce that product to meet that price point. So that so I, I get shopping on price. Uh, with food, for me, being a chef, mm -hmm. uh, it's not about that. It's the, the taste, it's the quality. It's, it's all of that other stuff. And I feel like 
there's so much food I or mostly fruits and vegetables where I go and I just say it's like where the word the flavor go right it's like yes it looks like a an apple <laughs> but it doesn't taste like an apple anymore and so uh, which leads me to this idea of farmers markets and buying local you know buying foods that are grown within 50 miles of you but not every Buddy has that luxury of of that. Do you see that um, focus on buying local, supporting local, affecting your business, or is it really the opposite pull, which is I really need to get things more global? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it depends on the level of affluence of the consumer. Okay. I think as folks become more affluent, they will tend to demand a better tasting product. That's why folks come to our fruit stand. Um, however, I think for most folks, it's no different than, than, than shopping for uh, anything. They're going to shop and try to find the best possible price they can to be able to feed their families. And so consequently, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, food is, you know, when I teach a class, I always say I got the most important job in the world. I'm a farmer. And I'm proud of it. And folks in the audience uh, or the students will turn to me and say, Ed, but I work for XYZ company and I've got the most important job in the world because I'm trying to create a cure for cancer. What makes you any different than me? Hmm. And so, you know. What, what's your answer to that person, by the way? Well, um, if I'm going to be sarcastic, I'll say, yeah, but you're not going to get too far unless you can eat. But, I mean, I understand where they're coming from, and I, I like that passion. I like people that are passionate about what they do every day. Um, and I understand when folks go shopping, they're looking for a product that meets a certain specification for them, price, quality, quantity. Um, and then there are other folks, like yourself, that really enjoy going to the farmer's market and maybe willing to pay a 20 or 30% premium for that product because it fits what you want. So there is a, uh, a place in Ventura that uh, buys our strawberries and for the products they make. And they like coming to our, uh, my wife's stand because it fits their QC, it fits their taste, you know, their chefs, and it fits the taste they're trying to get across to their customer. And so they came in yesterday and bought a bunch of strawberries and I thank them for it and they go, well, you know, you guys have what we want. Okay, that's wonderful. So that's the kind of consumer that we're getting. But, you know, for the, the masses, they may want something a little different than at a different price point. They're not going to say, I want an inferior product, but I want a product that I can afford. They're good enough. Good enough. And it meets my price point so I can feed my family. And that's really important. That's why global agriculture is what it is today. I'm curious. I'm always looking for niche markets. Uh, one of the things now with celebrity chefs and and there's there's this the the foodie culture mm -hmm. is just kind of exploded, right? People really paying attention to that. Um, do you have chefs who go out of their? I mean, you just told me about these guys, but you have chefs coming out of the, going out of their way because I've got to have Ed's berries. Yeah, it was funny this year. Um, uh, fella heard about us all the way from Whittier. He owns a, uh, he's a baker, high-end baker. He and his wife drove up a number of times just to get our strawberries for special orders he had for 
some big parties he was doing. And it was like, you're coming all the way from Whittier to our place? Yeah, we heard about you. We saw you... Uh, uh, we we saw your product was from some friends down in the area and had it. It was so good. And uh, so consequently, we wanted to come up and buy it. Well, that's a long drive. Well, yeah, but we want the we want the quality and we're we're willing to pay for it. So I have done that. Um, I'm, I want your address. Please give me the address. I'm going to post it. What's the address of the fruit stand? It, it, it's uh, uh, 1701 yeah. Telephone Road, Ventura. Yeah. And uh, it's Terry Berry's. Dot com. Yep. T-E-R-R-Y. B-E-R-R-I-E-S. Terryberries.com. Yep. And it's also the same as the Instagram site. So I um, have been going to a small farm off of, um, it's off of Lewis, I think. Mm -hmm. It's um, in Camarillo. It's, it's kind of at the far end and it's, you have to buy it right there. So it's like. I know who you're talking about. Good friend. Yeah. And. They're insanely good. Yep. Right. They're just like, oh my gosh, I I will. It's funny when you taste something really delicious. You're like, you know what? I'm not going to eat any of that thing unless I I'll go out of my way to go and get that. And it feels like there's a movement now towards uh, a craft, an appreciation of craft that we didn't really have before. Someone will say, you know, I'll wait. I, yes, I could have that chocolate bar. But I'm going to wait and save up for this other bar because of I understand where it was made. I know the farmer. I know, the, and it's going to have a taste that I'm going to appreciate. And uh, so I know I'm coming down. Well, it it it's an experience, right? right? You're going for the experience, and the experience is, I think, all the way from seeing the product produced, meeting the people that produce it, and then consuming the the, the uh, product. And it's part of that slow food movement, right? Yes, and, absolutely. And uh, Roots of Change is an yep. organization, and, and uh, Michael Demick up there. And, and uh, uh, so, yeah, you're right. I, I think there is a niche for that. And fortunately, along the coast, we have the ability to experience that because we have such great growing right. areas right. that you're able to go to the farmer's market in right. Santa Barbara, Ventura, or, or even Santa Maria and uh, experience that. I, I really I really like it, and it, there's a niche for it. And then the other side of what we do is the more of the the bigger stuff that we do. Yeah, well, you've got to pay the bills. Yeah, right. So you, it's kind of like that. 80, I don't know if this number is right, but the eighty twenty rule. It's like that eighty percent. We're going to do the contract farming. We're going to do all that, and all of the the optimization of all the systems that have to work in conjunction to conspire to make the perfect berry right. can work in this small very very high touch part of the berries. And we try really hard as a family to not only grow our, our berries with that high touch, but even the crops that we grow on a big scale, the same touch. Right. Because there's right. part of you in there. Yeah, yeah. And, and you yeah, really yeah. want to make sure that when you that crop comes off, people are happy with it. Tell me, give me some stories about like, what was the, what was the hardest thing to grow? You're like, okay, we we hear there's a need for this. Let's try to grow it. And it was just the Dickens. I think the hardest crop that we grow out of all the crops we grow are peppers. Why is that? Um, and we've been in the pepper business forever. We used to grow for, remember Ortega chilies? Sure. We used to grow Anaheims and jalapenos yeah. for them. Yeah. And, but peppers, um, they're a fickle crop. Um, they, uh, they've gotten better with better breeding. But they're susceptible to almost every insect that's out there. And we have an insect in Ventura County called the pepper weevil. 
Of course. Yeah, of course. And what it does, it flies onto the blossom, and then the fruit grows around it. Oh. And once the so the weevil's in the fruit. In the fruit, then it exits. Smart. It it goes it exits the fruit, and then the fruit aborts. And so there's no organic way of killing it. It is, I think it would survive a nuclear holocaust. But so you, when you see, we put sticky traps on the edges of our field, these yellow traps that they fly into. And every week the pest control advisor comes around and looks at these sticky traps to see if there's weevil. And if he sees one weevil, there's probably a million. So now we have to start treating for the weevil preventively. So it doesn't land on the blossom mm -hmm. and have the fruit grow around it because at that point it's too late. And we learned that back in the mid 1980s, we nobody had ever heard about this insect before. Apparently, it was endemic into Tennessee and Florida, places like that. Never heard of it in California. It got transported out here somehow, and then all of a sudden we had a 40-acre field die. Boom. Boom. Everybody's looking at what is going on here, and they brought in researchers from the University of Florida who uh, did some forensic studies and said, oh, you've got pepper weevil. What's that? Well, yeah, what's that? What's right? that? Uh, and all of a sudden, since about 1985, it's, it's been on the radar. So peppers are a real fickle crop. They're, uh, they, uh, they're very susceptible to soil-borne diseases, phytophthora, uh, you know, uh, overwatering, underwatering, insects, weather. So, so pepper, did you just stop doing it? No. We grow 500 <laughs> acres of them. It's been our main crop. No kidding. Yeah. But it's the hardest to grow. It's the hardest to grow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it, it, but we've always been pepper growers. So what's um, – oh, so different question. Do you have like a, a home garden? No. He's <laughs> 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 like, I'm done. Hang on, Mom, there's no way I'm doing that. Once in a while, my wife will plant tomatoes or something like right, that. Right, sure. But I, I do not have a green thumb. I do not have a green thumb. Yeah, I, uh, I, I cook constantly and so and I've tried I just can't keep up with how much I need I would need a full garden full-time so I've got a I love going to Tri-County Produce here because he's got he buys from all the local farmers and he's got local he's got great stuff on every day it's super consistent I love that but I in people say well why don't you love you know you care so much about it Mark why don't you grow your own it's like there's other people that care more. <laughs> <laughs> I could, well, right. I, I got to tell you, there's probably nothing better than a, a tomato grown in the backyard. Or it, a, in my case, a raspberry. If I can walk oh. out and pick a raspberry, I'm like, okay. And then my father-in-law lives uh, in Carpentry in the foothills, and he does cherimoyas, avocados, uh, 12 different citruses. And he's retired and loves, 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 loves all of that. Best avocados I can get are from him. And I said, gosh, Al, I'd, I'd like some berries. So now he's got 120 feet of berries. Oh, nice. Uh, and so I've got all the berries. And then he did Marion berries and he, oh, was all this great stuff. We actually have a quarter of an acre of hydroponic blueberries that we've been experimenting with. Why do that, blueberries in Santa Barbara in this region, I th for some reason in my head, I thought blueberries were a cold crop like cranberries. They're yeah. not. Tell us about blueberries. Blueberries are huge here. Yeah, they, they and they and uh, and they taste great uh, because they've come out with varieties. Uh, I think it's the universe. Don't quote me, but for some reason I'm thinking it's either Arkansas State or the University of Arkansas have created varieties of raspberries, blackberries, blueberries that'll grow in this climate, and mm. and they 
especially, you know, nowadays you can grow things hydroponically and, you know, put a computer out there and just dial in exactly what you need when you need it uh, with fertilizer and, and the right fertilizers. And it's amazing the productivity some of the guys are getting with their blueberries now. And uh, they really taste great. And it's added a whole new dimension into the tri-counties. So when you... Um, I was introduced to hydroponic farming at the Epcot Center mm -hmm. 30 years ago, maybe more when they opened it up and we went and we saw what they were doing with hydroponics. And I was like, oh, okay, that's amazing. Why, what's the, econo the economy of scale of doing that and why don't you convert your acre, acreage to hydroponics? Well, you can grow peppers. They do it in Canada and in, in the Netherlands. You can grow peppers hydroponically fantastically. You grow tomatoes hydroponically fantastically. But you can't grow things like celery that have to be on a mass scale out in a field. It would, the cost, it would be uh, the logistics of doing something like that, as well as the cost, would be just out in out So in it depends the, on the crop. Depends on the crop. Like wheat, you couldn't grow wheat hydroponically. But you can grow certain crops like tomatoes, blueberries, blackberries, marion berries, alala berries, strawberries, uh, peppers, uh, cucumbers. Crops like that do very well because they have a long growing and production cycle. So you string them up right. and you just keep picking and picking and right. picking because they keep right. producing more and more fruit. Right. Right. Tell me about, um, we'll, we'll end on this one because I, I love farming. It's just, it's because it's of the food, right? Yeah. Whenever I, for, it's interesting with me when, if I take um, uh, the food I don't use, leftovers, or if I'm, th something gets thrown away, which I don't, I, everything goes composting back to my father-in-law. But I think about all of the calories that were burned to make that piece of fruit show up on my table. You know, it's like all the work that had to happen for that thing is just immense. And so I pay attention to the whole food chain, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. Talk to me about vertical farming, and are we doing any of that here in It's the area? funny you bring that up, Mark, because uh, my son and I are, uh, we're, uh, there's an old barn on a, 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 a farm that we lease. It's going to come down, and we're going to put up a vertical system maybe for strawberries. So tell people what vertical farming, I just learned about this. There's a big article in the New Yorker within the last four months. So vertical farming is almost, think about a skyscraper on a, you know, the maybe five or 10 feet tall and you grow the crops on different areas of this vertical trellis and hydroponically and it's all irrigated by computer. And then the crop you're growing, let's say strawberries, you plant them in a, in a, a, a soilless media, it grows and then the, the plant kind of falls to the side and leans down at face level. So it's very easy to pick. Mm. So maybe from your knees up to your head, it's very easy to pick. And uh, the crop keeps producing, producing, and producing. It's out of the soil. It's in a, it's in a more uh, favorable environment. And the mo I think the most important thing is your workers, when they go to pick it, they don't have to bend over anymore. Mm. Or mm. down the road, you convert it like some of the uh, Japanese are doing and in Europe, they convert to robotic harvesting. And they do it inside a facility and the robot goes back and forth, back and forth to harvest that crop. That's where some wow. of this is heading. In fact, a friend of mine is working with a group from uh, Spain for robotic harvesting in the field for strawberries. 
just because we have a shortage of labor and it it removes the burden off the worker. The worker's still there to pack the product, but now they're sitting down and not in a, an environment where it's hot, cold, you know, wet, whatever. So this is where a lot of this is trending and the vertical farming, hydroponic farming is at the forefront of that where five, 10 years down the road when optics become better and computing power uh, is able to differentiate. Optics meaning machine vision that can tell when the fruit's ready. And the machine learning too. Right. That can tell the difference between a, a strawberry that is uh, okay to pick and one that might have botrytis on it and needs to be thrown away. Uh-huh. That's where we're heading to wow. that. And there's a lot more. You can get on the internet. There's a lot of research being done out there. Cal Poly, UC Davis, uh, John Hopkins, Carnegie Mellon. There's a lot of UCLA. There's a lot of research out there for agri. And again, going back to what you said about how can kids get into the industry. There you go. Boom. Boom. I'm thinking your grandchildren will, the, the farm may not look the same. It will not look the same. Right. It'll be a lot different. And and I I have so much more to, to ask, uh, and we're running out of time. Part of the, part of economics and part of business is risk management, mm-hmm. right? It's a big part of it, and especially the guy who's counting the money, right? Right, because it's like you're that's all you're thinking about is how can I shave and be more efficient and do all of that. So I'm thinking with risk management. You talked earlier about there's the risk of the soil. Right. There's the risk of nature, the weather. There's the risk of pests and Mm -hmm. bugs. There's the risk of uh, economic forces that are out of your control. Right. Market risk. Right. Right. Market risk. So did I miss one? Reputational risk. Okay. Reputational risk. Right. So now with vertical farming, hydroponic farming, we, we can control the climate. So I don't have a problem there. I control the soil. There isn't any soil. I control the pest because it's hermetically sealed in that mm-hmm. room. Um, I've actually improved the working conditions for my employees, so I've mitigated that risk. I can't do anything about the reputation might be actually enhanced because I've got my QC is, is perfect. Right. Then why don't we all do that? It takes time. It's capital intent. A brand oh. new state of the art hydroponic nursery, state of the yeah. art, yeah. is about a million dollars an acre. So it it takes a lot of capital to do that. And how long does it take to recoup that million dollars? Yeah, I you know that's a great question. I don't know what the the uh, net present value of that is or the payback, but I do know that they're doing it all over the world now. Right, because now you're taking so so. What's the advantage of Southern California in this area? Is it's um, it's our weather. It's all of those things. The so weather is probably the key thing, but right. the most important thing that the nursery guys tell me is access to natural resources like gas. You know, natural gas to heat heat the facility. Right. right. Uh, just the, what are the costs of of the inputs coming in to power? You know, the electrical power. What are the costs of those inputs coming in to versus the outputs going out. In Southern California, it's just really expensive right now. That's what I was just saying, is that we're, we lose our competitive edge because now I can go anywhere. If we take all these risks off the table, and it's like, well, oh, I don't care if it's cold all the time. I can grow because I can control everything. And, and one of the things that Matthew Finup and I have been working on is, is this water market. Right, and right. We it, talked about that. Yeah, yeah, and that, we hope, will help solve some of the issues with water. Um, as the as as the the industry changes, 
still have to have access to water. So maybe a water market will help in some, some way. But more importantly, uh, when you look down the road 20 years, you need to be in an area that can provide you all the amenities you need to be able to grow that crop, whether it's vertical, hydroponically, in a nursery, you've got to be able to have the resources to do that. The guys in New York, um, they took old warehouses that were like super inexpensive and converted it in New Jersey and they're doing uh, a boutique lettuces. Yep. And they can, it's a, a few weeks. What is it? I don't know how long it takes to- It's very lettuce. quick, living lettuce. Yeah. yeah, living lettuce. There you go. I love it. This has been fascinating. And what, what's interesting is even though, what was the percentage of farming? Is 2%, 1%? I mean, in terms of number of workers, there's not a lot. 4% so, of the GDP. Right. So I'm thinking of, of the audience who listens to the show. Right. I don't know that there's any farmers. However, what's been interesting is how we you, you universalized this whole, all of the things that you have to care about every business has to carry about. It's, it's no different, and it, and it comes down to a common denominator amongst all of us. It's the passion you put into it. I love it. And that's that's the most important, and that's a key thing. So what would we call this show, this conversation? Someone's listening, or they're looking at our back catalog. Imagine it's a library, and there's 192 episodes up there, and this episode, it's not about farming because they may not grab that title. What's the title of this show? I, I would say it's the uh, food system. The food system. There you go. That's the way I look at it. It's a system. I love it. I was accused um, just recently of being a systems thinker, um, which I took as a compliment because I didn't really, I didn't understand that that's how I look at stuff. And it was, it took someone, an academic actually, who I work with. She says, well, the reason I like working with you is because you think of everything as a system. So... With that, I want to thank you very much. Now, I got the address of the stand, and so we can find out more about you at terrysberries.com. Yes. Right? And do you ship if someone wanted to buy berries? Uh, we haven't because we're always afraid of what's going to happen. But we right. have people come to the stand, buy it, and then they ship it. Oh, good. Yeah. So find a friend in Ventura who will go and then FedEx berries FedEx. to you Fact, in Finland. Yeah, they just did that. Not no to Finland, kidding. but it went over to Europe. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for being on the show. I also want to thank California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman & Weicker Insurance Services and our podcasting partner, Postering Press. If you're interested in partnering with us or if you're interested in doing a podcast, we've got a lot of people contacting us feel that this is a great way to get their story out. We call it conversational content. If that's interesting to you, you'd like to talk to us, just drop us a note to podcast at 805connect.com. And also, uh, one of the things you could do is if you're sitting with someone, uh, you've just listened to the show, ask them for their phone, take the phone, find their podcast app, and subscribe them to the show so that you can give them the gift of learning something new. I'd love to hear from you. If you have questions or an idea for a guest for an upcoming show, Gerhardt, I know you listen to the very end. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. And drop me a line at mark at 805 Connect with any ideas you have. And thank you so much. And until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations. 